Thank you for listening to the Voices of UMass Chan, featuring the people, ideas, and advances of UMass Chan Medical School. Thanks for listening to the Voices of UMass Chan. I'm Jennifer Berryman, Vice Chancellor for Communications at the Medical School. Today, the latest in treating and unraveling the mysteries of lupus, an autoimmune disease that affects hundreds of thousands of Americans each and every year. Our guest, Dr. Roberto Caricchio, Professor of Medicine, Chief of the Division of Rheumatology and a renowned lupus expert. Dr. Caricchio, welcome. Thank you. Thank you for having me. We have a lot to cover, so let's start with the basics. Lupus is an autoimmune disorder. That means it's when a person's own immune system is attacking some of their own tissues and organs. So what are the symptoms that that can cause and that people often experience? So, yes, at the very core of the disease, there is this uh, autoimmune uh, attack. Uh, basically, the immune system no longer recognizes uh, itself as itself and uh, things that maybe is a virus or, a, or is a, a form of infection and uh, it generates a lot of inflammation. Now, the, the name that you use is a systemic lupus erythematosus and there is a reason why there is the word systemic in front of this disease. That is because it can manifest in a variety of ways to the point that there is an old uh, expression in internal medicine. And that is, if you know lupus, you know internal medicine because virtually every organ can be affected in uh, in lupus. Now, there are certain organs that are more affected than others, such as uh, the skin and the kidney So we and the joints. So we often look at those three uh, uh, manifestations, but those are by, by no means uh, the only three. Uh, lupus, unfortunately, can involve the heart, the lungs, uh, the brain, and and so forth. So it is a disease that needs a very strict attention and very strict follow-up. And so um, I- I've read that lupus tends to be more common in women than in men. Is, is there a rash? Is that true, first of all? And if so, do you have any idea why? So it is uh, absolutely true. Uh, 90% of patients with lupus are uh, females and only 10% is males. Having said that, though, those males that have lupus, which is which constitute a minority, do not have a milder lupus. Uh, at times, on the contrary, they might have a more aggressive lupus, especially when it comes to uh, lupus nephritis. So never underestimate the fact that uh, a male with lupus might have a milder one, uh, number one. Number two, uh, I do have some ideas, but we really don't know why there is. It is one of the mysteries of, uh, of lupus disease. One of the reasons that we, we have clues about is the fact that uh, the X chromosome, uh, which characterizes uh, the, the female uh, genetics, has a very uh, heavy involvement. Uh, into the pathogenesis, at least the cause of it. We, why there is, we don't know exactly what are the genes in the X chromosome, but we do know that the more X chromosomes an individual has, the higher is the risk of lupus. And in fact, there is an interesting uh, uh, syndrome, which is called the, the triple X syndrome, in which an individual has not two, but three X chromosomes, and then individuals individuals have 30 
all increased chance of developing lupus. Wow. Okay. So this is leading right into my next question because you'll tell me if I'm wrong, but there's clearly a genetic component to it, but the genetics might not explain everything about why certain people get lupus and why certain people don't. So what do doctors and researchers know about that interplay between genetics and environmental factors? So first of all, you seem to know a lot about lupus, <laughs> but, but, uh, but, but besides that, you, you're absolutely right. So we do know that there is a genetic predisposition, and let me repeat that word, predisposition. That doesn't mean that with the right genes, one will develop lupus because there is a very strong so-called environmental component, which we are still working about, and we are still trying to identify what those environmental factors are. First, I'll give you an, the example of uh, what we know about identical twins, right? So identical twins are identical in principle, and yet only 40%, 30 to 40% of the identical twins will develop lupus. Meaning if one identical, I'm sorry to interrupt you, but meaning that if one identical twin develops lupus, there's only a 30% chance that their twin would also develop it? Up to that. Yes, correct. So, and genetically speaking, that is a lot. It's a lot. 30% even, it's a lot, despite we think of identical twins as identical, which we now know that they are not identical at all. But uh, that means that there is a very strong genetic component, but there is also a very strong environmental factor that uh, 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 determines the fate of that individual in terms of developing lupus or not. Um, and so those environmental factors are uh, uh, really obscure, I must say. Uh, we, we really don't know. We do know that there are certain factors that might uh, uh, tip over the individuals with the right uh, a genetic predisposition, such as the UV light, the sun. Uh, it is a classic uh, classic onset of lupus of a young individual in uh, her uh, reproductive age who goes, it feels well, perhaps had, had in the past a, a couple of episodes of a fever, subjective fever, and maybe some malaise, but then at some point goes to the shore, gets exposed or go, goes hiking and gets exposed to the sun uh, for a prolonged period of time. And uh, the day after does have a, a very uh, uh, um, uh, severe rash, or even without much of a severe rash, feels really unwell, develops a fever and perhaps joint pains, goes to the physician and gets diagnosed with lupus. Because we know that UV light, uh, the sun, uh, does have an effect on lupus, as lupus patients are much more susceptible to UV light, which we call photosensitivity which is a very, very uh, typical manifestation of lupus uh, disease. And so we always recommend the patients once diagnosed uh, to, yes, they can be exposed to the sun, but with sun uh, protection. And it's not, in that instance, it's not the sun that's causing the lupus. It's sort of like uh, exacerbating this or bringing out the symptoms. Is that true? It, it is actually quite correct. So it's an exuberant reaction to the sun that in a genetically predisposed individual then leads to a sustained autoimmunity. So when I say genetically predisposed, for example, we know now it's been 20 years or so ago that uh, a, a very important work was published about the fact that lupus patients 
once diagnosed, it does not mean that the disease started at the time of diagnosis, but actually the contrary. Many of, many of those patients who develop lupus, if we could test them 10 years before they had developed lupus, we would actually find the signs of lupus in their blood. The, the typical other antibodies that we measure to diagnose lupus, in many of those patients are actually present years before the disease manifests clinically itself. It sounds like you're answering the next question. Is there a definitive test to say without a, without question that somebody has lupus? And it sounds like it's a blood test. There isn't a definitive test. There is meaning there are tests that are very specific for lupus, but having the test positive does not mean that one has lupus. One has lupus if the test is positive and there are clinical manifestations of lupus. Okay. So meaning I have skin issues or joint pain or kidney Correct. challenges Correct. Correct. and in combination with the, the blood test coming back positive. Okay. And it's a very important, very important distinction because many, many individuals can have those tests positive, such as the most common is the ANA, anti-nuclear antibody, uh, which is the most common uh, prescribed to initiate uh, uh, a diagnosis of lupus and uh, randomly speaking so if i test 100 individuals randomly without uh, diagnosing lupus 10 15 will come back positive to that test interesting but that doesn't mean that they have autoimmunity that they, they have lupus it's just that the test is predictive of uh, a disease in the in the clinical context not outside of the clinical uh, context. Yeah. And it doesn't necessarily mean that it would interfere with your life, right? I mean, you could have flare-ups or you could have the presence of those antibodies in your blood, but not necessarily have them manifest as symptoms. Although there are levels of those antibodies that are also very important. So if the levels are very high, then that individuals might need to be followed once or twice a year to make sure that uh, nothing is changing. Or if that individual has a first degree relative with lupus, that individual might be more at risk of developing lupus. And so it might need to be followed closer than an, an, an individual who does not have first degree relatives with lupus. And in fact, there are uh, at least uh, two studies in the country ongoing to determine if it's possible to prevent lupus knowing those variables. Uh, one of them is, for example, the study of siblings, first degree relatives with very high levels of, uh, of positive tests. Um, and they are actually uh, uh, treated with uh, a, a very common uh, I mean, medication that we use in lupus, which is hydroxychloroquine or plaquenilazone brand name. And it will take years before we know that because uh, statistically few of them will develop lupus or so. But, but it is an attempt in certain individuals in which we know more of their risks to to delay or even prevent. And um, another study instead is looking at those patients who have a so-called incomplete lupus, so with few manifestations here and there, but they don't meet the classification criteria, but they're definitely more at risk of developing lupus. Also treated with hydroxychloroquine and see if that might delay the full uh, development of lupus. You're listening to the Voices of UMass Chan podcast, featuring the people, ideas, and advances of UMass Chan Medical School. 
You're listening to the Voices of UMass Chan. Our guest today is renowned lupus expert, Dr. Roberto Caricchio. He holds the Miles J. McDonough Chair in Rheumatology here at UMass Chan Medical School. Dr. Caricchio, I mean, everything you're explaining just tells me it's such a complex disease. Now, you take care of people with lupus and you also conduct research. You collaborate with researchers to try to develop better treatments, hopefully a cure at some point. What led you to your interest in rheumatology and specifically in lupus? When uh, I rotated through rheumatology, it was clear to me that I was always, by the way, interested in the why of the diseases. So uh, that uh, led me to rotate through rheumatology and rheumatology uh, it, it's obviously a clinical uh, subspecialty, but it has so much uh, basic science into it, so much immunology. In fact, I mean, you can't really be a good rheumatologist if you don't know immunology. So immunology is fully integrated into rheumatology, especially when it comes to autoimmune uh, diseases. And so that complexity brought me to rheumatology. Now, within rheumatology, lupus is the most complex condition and so because i'm uh, i'm i'm really attracted to complexity then then lupus was 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 an obvious uh, choice you're drawn to complexity you're drawn to mystery you're you're drawn to the difficult part of life i would say that so uh, and and i must say though that uh, that was uh, the mid 80s i mean sorry late 80s uh, when i was attracted and then i was rotating in early 90s and between the early 90s and now, it has been a revolution in lupus. I mean, I must say that it has been a revolution in many other conditions in rheumatology, and lupus is not, is not an exception. It, if I, it has been really a privilege to see how much progress uh, we have done in uh, not just in understanding lupus disease, but also treating it. It is a different world. I, 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 in the early 90s, I, have, I had one option. Now... I have six options if things don't, if patients don't respond. And this is just the beginning, by the way. I, I, have, I had the privilege of participating to some of those uh, uh, research studies that led to better understanding, but I also have the privilege of, of participating to clinical trials that for, for which now we have approved treatments for lupus. And, um, and for 50 years, nothing happened. I mean, we had nothing approved by the FDA for 50 years wow. in, in Lewis. And uh, only in the last three years, uh, we had three new medications approved, uh, approved for Lewis. That's so satisfying. Let's talk about that a little bit. So first of all, if I'm a person, just a, a regular person, and I'm maybe experiencing joint pain, at, at what point would I come to see a rheumatologist? Like at what point do you tell people that they should come see a doctor, come see a specialist? Most of the time is up to the primary care doctor uh, to decide when it's time he or she is the one who knows the best, uh, the patient, and, and, and can, can professionally understand that something in that, in that individual has changed. Is no longer the usual pains that we all go through, that, that there is something more, perhaps more than usual fatigue, uh, perhaps actually a swollen joint. Uh, and, and couple that with uh, 
the age. The age is very important. So the peak of incidence of lupus is the, the childbearing age, uh, and, and it is between the 25 and 35 year age, the peak. So someone who's 25, who's now healthy otherwise, now complains of generalized fatigue, joint pain, and objective uh, swelling of the of joint, perhaps even... Uh, um, uh, a skin rash that is exuberant after sun exposure, well, that deserves some more uh, investigation. And, and generally, primary care doctors are actually pretty good sure. in in uh, checking the first line of tests that would indicate, one, the presence of inflammation in, in that individual, and two, possibly the presence of uh, autoimmunity. And and then they're they're they actually quite good in in sending those patients to us. Now, those tests and those clinical manifestations might not lead to lupus, might lead to something else. But but it's important to screen those patients from from a rheumatological point of view. And so, if when that happens, and and a, a patient comes to see you for the first time, maybe they're diagnosed with lupus. What is the what's the first step? What What is the most common treatment that you would start with? Before that, the first step is reassuring the patient. Uh, uh, at least that's what I generally do. Uh, and, and so I say the same thing I told you. It, if you had been diagnosed with lupus in the early 90s, you would be in a far worse shape than today. So today I have we we can go through a multitude of options and and uh, we better understand your disease and so we can better take care of that. Uh, so first of all, so reassurance is very important and and definitely support any type of support, uh, not just professionally from from me, but also from from. Uh, uh, a group of individuals who have lupus from the right sort to so provide the patients with the right source of information, where to look for more information, um, because it's important to be educated. Uh, the best in a chronic disease, the best physicians, in my opinion, is actually the patient, because it is the patient that will be always with that disease. Sure. You might change me as a provider, but the disease is going to be with you, especially if it's chronic. So you are the one that are the best judge. And um, and then the most common treatment, well, the most common is hydroxychloroquine. Every single patient with lupus should be on hydroxychloroquine unless there are contraindications. But then it depends really on the manifestations. So depending on the severity of the disease, then there are specific treatments now. And fortunately, now you said you have a half a dozen options, uh, which were not available to people decades ago. And the combination of them. So it's uh, <laughs> we yeah. can also combine them. Now, that doesn't mean that we're done with lupus. Right. There is still a long way to go. And that is why there are tens of clinical trials ongoing in the United States. But now it sounds like you probably have better tools at your disposal to manage the symptoms so that people can live as normal a life as possible while still managing the disease. Yes, yeah, yes, yes. So one thing that personally I did not anticipate I would have witnessed in my career in lupus is the concept of a treat to target, which I'll explain briefly. And the con well, that, so that's it there in particular. So the concept of treat to target implies that the target has to be quiescence or remissions of the disease. So that the disease has to be completely under control. That is the target. 
And the trick to target is how to reach to that. Now that concept is uh, already a decade old, maybe more in rheumatoid arthritis. And in fact, rheumatoid arthritis has been revolutionized completely from the nineties to today. Uh, you can walk around and see someone with rheumatoid arthritis that has been having that disease for the past 15 years. So you wouldn't be able to see, I mean, to, to, to know that unless they told you my first training, those patients were, were in a wheelchair within a few years. Now they actually, but you can hear that. Now in lupus, now we are approaching that. And the treat to target is a wonderful concept because we have a target and that is the quiescence of the disease, the complete uh, uh, control of the disease. Now we strive to do that. Doesn't mean that we need to, doesn't mean that we always succeed, but there is that concept in lupus because we have few options that might allow that. And so along with that, we have, we have the, the, the concept of low disease activity status in which we, we set up criteria in which we push medically the patient into it. And then that actually diminishes the rate of flares so that, that improves the outcome. So that, is, uh, that was unheard 20 years ago. So being able to actually control lupus that way. So I want to wrap up by, um, so you arrived at UMass Chan in 2022, and, and, and since coming here, you've launched a new lupus program at the medical school and at UMass Memorial Health. I wondered if you could just um, explain a little bit of what is your vision for that program and how will it help patients? Sure. Uh, yes, I came here in July and has been wonderful so far. Um, now, one of my uh, primary objectives at UMass is to create a lupus program, among, among other things. Uh, but the lupus program is very dear to me because that's what I've been doing in Philadelphia, where I came from for many years, and I saw the change, the difference. So uh, uh, my vision here as the uh, UMass lupus program is to provide uh, patients with lupus with a host of services that aim at their uh, betterment from a, a well-being and from a clinical point of view. So the lupus program, first of all, is uh, and not just with me, but also with uh, Dr. Elena Grusman in my division, but we have also a dedicated uh, expert uh, dermatologist and uh, nephrologist, and we will get on board as well uh, an OBGYN, and, uh, and a neurologist as well. So patients, as I mentioned to you, it's a systemic disease. So patient needs the expertise, not just of the rheumatologist, but also of the nephrologist, the, the dermatologist and so on. So a team approach that would, a multidisciplinary approach that, would, that does improve outcome. Uh, it is my goal to also embed support groups in the program that will allow patients to uh, voice their concerns among themselves. It is, it is a very important exercise for them. But the Lupus program also uh, offers patients the possibility to participate to cutting-edge clinical trials, to, to breakthrough clinical trials that you must will participate to, and also to basic research, uh, because it's important to understand lupus to have better treatments. All of that will be provided to patients that will be in the program and um, and then we'll grow from there. <laughs> well, it sounds wonderful. And I think that combination of clinical care and then research so that you have better answers, better treatments in the years ahead is really the key. 
uh, and is so important to, to people who suffer with lupus and their families. So thank you for your work. And I must add one thing, and that is the fact that it was already here, but it's the Lupus Day. In May, uh, the, the division organizes uh, what's called the Lupus Day, and it's a day in which uh, in this year will be May the 2nd. Uh, but it's, it's a day in which we have uh, world-renowned investigators, uh, clinical lupus uh, experts, um, that will uh, 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 tell us about their cutting-edge science, but in the context of the impact on lupus patients. And in fact, the, the uh, lupus patients are invited as well. It's not just a scientific meeting. It's also a, a meeting for lupus at large, therefore also for, uh, for the patients. And it has been quite a success, and we look forward to being in person again this year. That sounds wonderful. And thank you for all the information, for the window into your work, uh, and for making time to join us, Dr. Caricchio. You're welcome. It's been a pleasure talking to you. Thank you. So our listeners can go to the show notes of this podcast for more links and to find out more about this new lupus program at UMass Chan. You can also listen to all Voices of UMass Chan podcast episodes wherever you get your podcasts or find them on UMass Med edu forward slash voices. Follow us at UMass Chan on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn. On YouTube, find us at UMass Chan Medical School.